From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, a conversation with Chesa Boudin. He's the progressive district attorney in San Francisco who's facing recall in next month's primary election. But first, how Americans are fighting back to protect abortion rights. Amy Littlefield will report. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent. That's coming up in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. First up, how Americans can fight back to protect abortion rights. The Supreme Court, in that leaked opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, did not say abortion is banned in America. The court majority said there is no constitutional right to abortion, so it's up to the states. State governments can protect abortion rights or they can ban them. So the battle for abortion rights now is in the states, and what does that mean for us? For comment and analysis, we turn to Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent and a journalist who focuses on reproductive rights, health care, and religion. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, let's note that the abortion rights battle started not in Congress, not at the Supreme Court, but in the states, the big states that passed abortion rights before 1973. And that's what finally got to the Supreme Court and culminated with passing Roe v. Wade. And then the southern states started cutting back on abortion rights. And then that finally got to the Supreme Court now. So really, it's always been about the states. Congress could act, Congress could pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would protect the right to legal abortion in every state. The vote in the Senate will be, I understand, on Wednesday. Uh, we go live before that vote will be taken, but we don't expect it to pass because it would require the filibuster to be suspended, and our friends Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have said they are not going to vote to suspend the filibuster to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. So that's not going to happen. So the states. Let's talk briefly about the political battles which are underway in the states. What, what are some of the important ones we, we should know about? 
Well, I think in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision becoming official, right? So that hasn't happened yet. We have a draft opinion that's been leaked. In the coming weeks, the Supreme Court's actually going to make that decision official. When that happens, what we can expect to see is a country divided and states heading rapidly in two completely separate directions. So we expect that about 26 states, so about half the country, will either ban or heavily restrict access to abortion altogether. So these are states that will seek to make abortion a crime, once again, in many cases, right? And then we'll see the remaining states in the country to some degree working to shore up abortion access. And there have been a lot of encouraging proactive efforts at the state and even at the city level to preserve abortion access, to shore up clinics, to create the infrastructure that's going to be needed to receive a huge influx of patients from other states and to make that travel and childcare and all of the various other um, elements of of logistical (laughs) machinery that have to come into play there to make all of that accessible to low-income people who are going to have to travel in some cases across whole regions of the country in order to reach the nearest clinic for abortion care. So that's sort of the immediate impact that we can expect to see. And I think if you ask organizers who have been working in states you know, especially red states, especially states that have been limiting abortion access step by step, law by law, waiting period by ultrasound law, by, you know, targeted regulation of clinics over time. If you ask those organizers, they will say the fight to preserve abortion access has always been in the states. It has always been a local battle. But the national movement for abortion rights has not always treated it that way. So the most immediate task right now is getting people who need abortions in states where it's going to become difficult or impossible to states where they can do it. So there's an enormous logistics operation underway, you have written in The Nation magazine. Now, we have Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is a wealthy organization. They have an endowment of something like $2 billion showing on their balance sheet. And then we have lots of other smaller state and local groups. What exactly is the relationship here? What does Planned Parenthood do and what do all the other groups do? Planned Parenthood is a tremendous political operation and they are a tremendous healthcare provider and often a safety net healthcare provider in a lot of states. People go to them because they might not be able to afford any other option. And they also have massive name recognition, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, if they need birth control or they need an abortion, they're going to Google Planned Parenthood before they think about anything else. So they're hugely important. On the other hand, I think there is a lot that Planned Parenthood doesn't do. And so there is a huge gap that grassroots organizations are trying to fill. And a major part of that is is doing the work of what I think a lot of abortion funds and grassroots organizations would say is a true embodiment of the work of reproductive justice, which is making real a right that only actually exists on paper in many cases if you are poor or Black 
or someone who lives in rural Mississippi or the mountains of West Virginia, right? Where your nearest clinic is many, many miles away and you don't have a way to get there. And so a lot of the energy and momentum of the abortion rights movement in recent years has gone into these grassroots abortion funds and their work is sometimes pretty boring and unglamorous and it is buying bus tickets scheduling, you know, sometimes looking at the the metro or the trains and buses in a city like Chicago or or DC and trying to figure out how is this patient going to get from point A to point B, arranging airfare. I mean, I've talked to groups, um, there's an abortion fund that serves indigenous patients that arranged for a private plane to come get someone mm. at one point in the COVID wow. pandemic. I mean, there's a, there are groups uh, on it working in Texas and New Mexico right now because Texas is had this six-week abortion ban in place for eight months that are doing airlifts of of abortion patients from Texas and, and bringing them to New Mexico. This is an enormous logistical operation, the likes of which maybe our country has never been never seen in this context before, at least, right? In terms of the, the movement of, of bodies that's going to be needed to, to make this right a reality. So this is going to take a lot of money and You report in the nation something I did not know, that most abortions for poor people in the United States are paid for by billionaire-backed private foundations, and that there is something called the Large Anonymous Donor, who's a well-known figure. Tell us about the Large Anonymous Donor and their role in this whole fight. One of the major strategies of the anti-abortion movement has been to try to cut off as much public funding of abortion as they can. Some states do pay for Medicaid coverage of abortion using their state budgets, but otherwise, because of the Hyde Amendment, this longstanding ban on on federal coverage of abortion, private funding needs to fill in this enormous gap. Sort of the backbone of that is the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, which is known as a large anonymous donor. They are quite secretive. Buffett, isn't this the sage of Omaha's wife that we're talking about? This is the late wife of Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway fame. I mean, he's not maybe the first person who you would think of as an abortion rights and access champion, perhaps. The Buffett family has sort of a constellation of of private family foundations funding a lot of, you know, reproductive health and gender justice causes. Um, You know, I've heard people refer to the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation as Vlad, the very large anonymous donor, like that's a (laughs) sort of tongue-in-cheek nickname for Warren Buffett in the field. And it's very hard to get people to talk about this because it's so, the, the foundation is so influential and so crucial and yet prefers to sort of keep itself out of the limelight. There's one other new billionaire who's funded this, the the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, Mackenzie Scott, who also prefers to stay out of the limelight, but it is publicly known that she has given $275 million to the Planned Parenthood National Office and 21 affiliates. So here's my question for you. From our point of view, having a couple of billionaires pay for all of this is not really a good idea. Exactly. I mean, and as one example of this, 
another Buffett family foundation, Warren Buffett's son, Peter, and his wife, Jennifer, have a foundation called the Novo Foundation that was also funding a lot of reproductive health and justice causes. Well, a few years ago, they went through a restructuring. They laid off about half of their staff. And this sent shockwaves through the reproductive justice space. That's because when you're really reliant on a single foundation <laughs> backed by a billionaire and that foundation changes its direction or hires a new program officer or comes up with a different set of priorities or loses some money in the stock market, then entire organizations can be forced to go through restructurings of their own because of what one of the organizers at Groundswell Fund described to me as a sort of boom bust cycle that really characterizes the way philanthropic giving works. Pro-choice Oregon is taking action to get out of this situation where, the, where we rely on a couple of billionaires. Tell us about Pro-choice Oregon and their political agenda right now. NARAL um, Pro-Choice America, which is the national organization that I'm sure many people have heard of, made a decision recently that it would disaffiliate its state organizations and would move to a chapter model. And so the 11 state organizations that were part of NARAL are now sort of moving in their own different direction. They've all rebranded. So Pro-Choice Oregon is the former NARAL affiliate in Oregon. Pro-Choice Oregon and their um, allies in the state of Oregon are really far out front, and they have mobilized to get the state legislature to authorize $15 million to create a reproductive health equity fund to shore up access to abortion in the state. And this is hugely important because we're seeing Idaho, for example, passing legislation that goes rapidly in the other direction to try to ban um, most, if not all, abortions. We're, we're understanding that states in that along that coast <laughs> and the East Coast and certain pockets of the country are going to become hubs, are going to become destinations for abortion access. And so the organizers I spoke to there said, you know what, this is really the direction that the whole movement needs to be going in. And, and the states, unlike Congress right now, are really a place where dramatic victories can be achieved. We've talked about the national political picture. We've talked about the immediate need for funding to get people to places where they can get abortions. And there's also the longer term task, uh, what you call deep, slow educational work organizing that will not only help people safely access abortion in the short term, but will change how people, especially people of faith, Think about abortion in the long term. This is something you know a lot about, the work being done by church groups, not only to provide uh, funding, but the vast time and energy they dedicate to shaping how people think about abortion. In the nation, you focus on a group called Faith Choice Ohio. You call it the future of abortion rights activism. Tell us about them. Faith Choice Ohio, this is another group that used to be part of a national umbrella called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. They're now fully their own organization. And I attended a, a training that they did last September where they had about 20 people. Everyone was on Zoom. 
Some people were members of the clergy. They were even wearing their clergy collars, right? Some people were just sitting there in their t-shirts, you know, hanging out at the end of a day, ready to learn how to help people self-manage their abortions. And this training was remarkable to me because it was framed in the language of faith and religion and sort of the moral case for helping one's neighbor in a situation like this. And I think in one sense, this is really important because helping people get access to safe abortion-inducing medication is going to be a huge, hugely important part of the organizing in the post-row landscape. Unlike before 1973, we now have safe medication that can be used to induce an abortion. And so part of what this group is doing is training clergy members so that when someone comes to you and says, I need help, I can't make it to the nearest clinic that's four hours away, or I can't fly you know, to Oregon, that they have the resources and the training and the understanding to know how to help someone in that situation. But the other part of this that's so important is that churches have been the base of power for the religious right. And I think the anti-abortion movement has been extremely skilled at organizing in those spaces, at making sure that abortion is part of Sunday school classes and sermons and that pastors are talking about it from the pulpit. And this has been a decades-long project of, of reaching people in their places of worship and and in these like really important intimate spaces of their lives to you know preach about abortion and Elena Ramsey the head of Faith Choice Ohio was one of those people she grew up in Ohio going to the assemblies of God church and she would hear all this anti-abortion messaging that she absorbed until she herself was raped in college and and that sort of opened up a different perspective for her and so i think that work of culture change of educating people that you can be a person of faith and still believe in the right to abortion and even believe that supporting the right to abortion is part of your faith. That is a sort of granular grassroots work that I think really has to be done by organizations based on the ground in communities like Ohio. In conclusion, let's not forget that the right to abortion passed because of a national movement that was rooted in states and cities. And overturning Roe now may be a move that leads to a revival of that movement and its transformation into something stronger. Because after all, the great majority of Americans support the right to abortion. It's been about 60-40 in favor for, for decades now. In the most recent poll, only 8% of Americans said abortion should be illegal in all cases. So the great majority is with us. It is a grim time. We have a lot of work to do. And it's good to be in this fight with such good allies, the ones you have told us about and the ones that you report on. So thank you, Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent. You can read her new cover story, The Fight for Abortion After Roe Falls at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. One final note, The Nation is launching a new monthly newsletter on the global struggle for reproductive freedom. It's called Repro Nation. Amy will be contributing to the first issue. Our listeners can sign up for it now by visiting thenation.com newsletter.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Progressive prosecutors have been pushing for criminal justice reform for a while now, seeking to end mass incarceration, to deal with police misconduct, and focus resources on protecting the public from serious and violent crime. Starting with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia in 2017, then Chesa Boudin in San Francisco in 2019, and then George Gascon in Los Angeles in 2020, also Chicago, Detroit, now several other places, Progressive prosecutors have won election, defeating traditional law and order prosecutors across the country. Of course, the defeated law and order forces have been pushing back. Larry Krasner won re-election, but in Los Angeles, George Gascon is the target right now of a recall campaign, which has a deadline of July 6th to turn in 560 signatures needed to get recall on the ballot in November. And right now in San Francisco, opponents of Chesa Boudin collected enough signatures to force a recall vote on June 7th. Chesa Boudin joins us now. He's the elected district attorney of San Francisco City and County. He's also a contributor to The Nation magazine. The last time he was here, we talked about children growing up with parents in prison. He was one of them. Chesa Boudin, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. I was sorry to see that your mother, Kathy Boudin, died on May 1st. She was a big figure in my life and a lot of other people of our generation. We were about the same age. We both grew up in the 60s. We were in, both in Students for a Democratic Society. At the end of the 60s, she joined the Weather Underground and ended up serving 22 years in prison. You were just over a year old at the time of her trial. In prison, she transformed herself in a powerful and moving way, and she was released in 2003. Could you just say a few words about her life, her political ideas, and her transformation? Well, John, obviously, um, I can say the same thing you can. My mother loomed large in my life as well <laughs> as she did, and, 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 and apparently many other people's. Uh, she was not just... Uh, the mother who brought me into the world, kicking and screaming. Um, she was not just um, the person who I came to love the way that sons love their mothers. She was also someone who was really inspirational to me and to countless others. Because like all of us, she made mistakes. She was human and she was fallible. And in her case, the mistakes she made were really, really costly. Uh, to her, to me, to our family, yes, but more importantly, to the lives of the three men who were killed in the crime for which she ended up serving 22 years in prison. And she took lessons 
from that tragedy and from those mistakes. Lessons that didn't change her fundamental values or the way she interacted with the people closest to her, but that changed the tactics she was willing to use and the strategy and grounded her in humanism and nonviolence. And almost immediately after she landed in state prison, she began dedicating herself to the betterment of her community and of herself. She was the first woman in the history of the state of New York to earn her master's degree while in prison. She co-founded and co-led a AIDS education group that was a peer-taught group by other incarcerated women and became a national model for preventing the spread of HIV-AIDS at a time when that disease was a death sentence. And she led bilingual literacy classes for many of the other women incarcerated who couldn't even read or write at the time of their incarceration. And she also led parenting programs to help other women in prison find ways to show the love for their children, even from the distance that their incarceration created. When my mom was released in 2003, I, I had just graduated from college and I was heading off to Oxford on a road scholarship and beginning my life, uh, secondary educational life. And I don't think either one of us could have predicted, despite the, the really strong relationship we had built during her years of incarceration, I don't think either one of us could have predicted all of the ways in which our relationship would grow and strengthen over the time um, since she was released, particularly given how hard she was working uh, during that period. She earned her doctoral degree from Columbia. She worked at Roosevelt St. Luke's Hospital, uh, establishing a medical program for people coming home from prison who had HIV AIDS and other uh, very serious diseases and needed healthcare in the community. Um, and she ultimately went on to found and co-direct the Center for Justice at Columbia University and other groups like the Release Aging uh, Prisoners on Parole Project, uh, RAP as it's known. She was a force of nature. And one of the things that everybody says about her, people who only met her once, who've been reaching out to me uh, over the days since she died, is that she was the most intense listener people have ever met. She cared and was interested in learning from and hearing from people she met from all walks of life. Um, she had an ability to convey that, that interest and, and to really be present and listening in an era when most of us are lost in our own train of thoughts or uh, faces buried in our telephone or computer screens. As her son, of course, it was all the, all the more so. She would drop everything every time I called. Uh, she was absolutely and totally committed to being an unconditionally loving and supportive mother to me, uh, mother-in-law to my wife. And for the few months that they overlapped on this planet, to my son, her only grandson. If our listeners want to find out more about Kathy Boudin, The Nation has published a piece by Jeff Jones and Eleanor Stein, and another one by Elizabeth Gaines. Well, let's talk about the movement to elect progressive prosecutors. Remind us about the ideas behind this movement, ideas you share with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, George Gascon in LA, and several of the other elected colleagues of yours. To understand the progressive prosecutor movement, you have to understand what it's a movement in response to or, or what the alternatives are. And so the tough on crime rhetoric that has so defined district attorney's offices and campaigns for well over 100 years in this country 
is rhetoric that basically focuses the resources of the district attorney on sending as many people to prison for as long as possible, usually poor people of color. And it's policies and practices that led us to a system known as mass incarceration. For folks who aren't familiar with that term, it's a term that describes the reality of the United States locking up more people than any other country in the history of the planet. It's an approach that has not made our community safer. It's failed to rehabilitate people who commit crime. It has failed to treat victims like human beings and to provide services and supports for survivors of crime. And it's a system that has so over-invested in law enforcement and jails and prisons that it's bankrupted local governments of the resources that are needed to actually prevent crimes proactively. Education, housing, jobs, healthcare, the things that we know are necessary to have safe and vibrant communities. And so the progressive prosecutor movement is a response to that failure in which folks like myself and the others you've mentioned, Kim Fox in Chicago, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, Rachel Rollins in Boston and more across the country have run for the office of district attorney with a specific commitment to reduce mass incarceration, to start focusing resources on treatment and addressing root causes of crime rather than simply punishment and vindictive justice, to expand restorative justice instead of punitive justice. It's a movement that recognizes to have integrity, to have public trust. Prosecutors must not only prosecute the poor people arrested for shoplifting or for selling drugs, but we must also prosecute police when they use excessive force. We must also prosecute corporate crooks who steal wages from their employees. We must also go after the manufacturers of guns that are being used to commit violent crimes in our communities. In other words, we need to build a system of justice that works for everybody, not just the wealthy and well-connected. And let's talk about San Francisco. Uh, How have you done on fulfilling the promises you made to the voters who elected you? It's been a difficult Uh, two years in office. Just a couple months after I was sworn in, the COVID pandemic shut down our city, shut me out of my office and reduced our courts to about 10% of their normal capacity. Um, Since then, I faced two separate recall attempts, one of which is, is still pending as we talk today. So we've had a lot of obstacles we never could have predicted. But despite all that, uh, I'm really proud of the work my office has done uh, during the first half of my first term in office. Let me give you a few examples of the ways in which we've tried to fulfill our promises to voters. You know, we talked about ending mass incarceration and sure enough, in my first year, we managed to close one part of our county jail. We also managed to reduce the number of kids in our juvenile detention facility by about 70% from peak to trough. And the way we made those jail reductions was through really intentional decisions about the individuals incarcerated. Look, we had high level policies, ending cash bail, creating an independent innocence commission to exonerate people who've been wrongfully convicted, resentencing people who've been in prison far longer than public safety required. And and that work has resulted in uh, resentencing nearly 70 individuals. Uh, But it was also a detail-oriented approach to every single individual person housed in our county jail, where we took seriously the mantra that jail should be a last resort, not a primary response to social problems. So I want to just give you one example of the ways in which during the COVID pandemic, at a time when we didn't have a vaccine, when we didn't understand fully what the implications of the disease were, but we knew it was deadly. 
And we heard from medical experts in jail health services across the country that jails and prisons created the perfect conditions for the deadly spread of COVID-19. Well, our jail medical staff identified for us a young woman serving a county jail sentence for her first ever conviction, a misdemeanor property crime. And they told us that she was pregnant and it was a high risk pregnancy. So we looked at the case, we looked at the history, we worked with our re-entry partners and we found a residential prenatal facility that was willing to take this young woman in. We asked the judge to reduce her sentence to time served and we got her transported directly from the jail to the prenatal facility where she stayed the course, she stayed sober. She graduated from the program and she gave birth to a healthy baby that I'm proud to tell you she is still a loving, caring mother for. It's that kind of approach, case by case, individual human beings, where we identified folks who didn't need to be in the jail. And in fact, we were making San Francisco safer by getting her out of the jail and into the place that she and that child in her belly needed to be. We also followed through on our commitment to expand services for victims. I wanna give you a few examples of that. Every single budget that I've ever submitted to the mayor and our board of supervisors has asked for more money for victim services. And though we haven't ever gotten everything we asked for, we've made really significant progress. We started a pilot program to reimburse small businesses that were being vandalized or having their windows broken during the pandemic. That pilot was so successful, it's now a citywide operation. We also recognize the need to increase language access, particularly for San Francisco's diverse immigrant communities in our Asian American Pacific Islander communities. I hired and promoted to the head of victim services, the first ever Chinese American head of San Francisco DA victim services. And we increased the number of Chinese speaking staff in our office by more than 500% during this time period. We also recognize that when victims of crime go to court, all too often traditional district attorneys treat them like pieces of evidence to help secure a criminal conviction. They only give interpreters when the person is testifying as evidence. But we know that many victims of crime want to understand the proceedings. They wanna know what's happening in the case, what arguments are being made, what rulings the judge is handing down. And so we implemented a policy, the first in the state that requires my team to request court certified interpreters to assist any victim or witness while they're observing court proceedings in their case. And we didn't stop there. At the beginning of the pandemic, we recognized that domestic violence survivors were being forced to shelter in place with their abusers. And so we joined forces with Airbnb and with the City Hall and with other agencies around the state to create short, medium and long-term housing opportunities so that victims of domestic violence and their children could find safe haven during the pandemic. We also recognize that one of the reasons many victims, especially in cases like sexual assault, don't come forward and cooperate with law enforcement is because they don't trust police or prosecutors or the process to protect them and their privacy. And in fact, we identified a situation, shocking, horrifying, where the San Francisco Police Department Crime Lab was storing the DNA profile of sexual assault survivors without their consent in a database that was used for investigations totally unrelated to the sexual assault for which they had submitted their bodies to such a intense investigative, intrusive investigative process. 
And we rose, we raised awareness about that practice. We demanded change. We dismissed the case against the victim of sexual assault whose DNA was being used against her. And we sponsored state legislation in Sacramento that will prohibit any law enforcement agency from across the state from ever using victims' DNA against them. We want to send a loud and clear message to survivors of crime, especially violent crime. We see you, we hear you, we stand with you, and we will protect your privacy. The other core promise we, we made was to expand accountability for those in power, to, to enforce the laws equally. And, and look, in some ways, this was the most radical promise that I made to voters. Um, it shouldn't be because it's enshrined in our country's founding documents. It's chiseled in stone above most courthouses in America. And yet for generations, those in power have been able to commit crimes and violate the law with impunity. So we filed the first ever homicide charges against a San Francisco police department officer who while on duty shot and killed an unarmed black man. And we took to trial the first ever excessive force case against a different San Francisco police officer for using a baton to break the bones of an unarmed black man. And we filed another case, homicide charges against a police officer who shot and killed an unarmed black man on the steps of his own home. It's that kind of work, holding police accountable, the lawsuit we filed against ghost gun manufacturers, the companies profiting off of shipping illegal firearms into our communities, designed to be used in crimes. The work we've done filing political corruption cases against those in government who abuse the public trust. The work we've done in our worker protection unit has filed landmark lawsuits against gig economy companies whose entire business model is based on stealing from their employees and from taxpayers systematically misclassifying people so that they don't have to pay minimum wage, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, or provide PPE to people working through the pandemic. The work we're doing to promote public safety and to actually hold those in power to account has made some very powerful people angry, some people with deep pockets, the police unions, the, the billionaires in their boardrooms of Silicon Valley gig economy companies. And those folks are, are used to and, in fact, demand impunity when they violate the law, but not on my watch. We have to talk about crime rates. The challenge to you in here in LA focuses on crime rates, which officially have been going up. Your opponents say you are responsible for that. Let's talk about crime rates. Sure. Well, you know, one thing about crime rates is they change day to day. There's lots of different ways to measure them. Um, and there's lots of different categories of crime. So, you know, let me put it this way. In the two and a bit years I've been in office, the number of reported crimes in San Francisco has declined. There have been 26,000 fewer reported crimes during the time I've been in office than compared to the exact same time period prior to my administration. The overall rate of reported crimes like rape is down 47%, robbery down 26%, assault down nearly 10% during the time I've been in office. Overall property crime is also down. Um, we've seen a massive decline in theft crimes during the period I've been in office, a 31% decline in reported thefts, comparing the time I've been in office with the exact same time period before my administration. But those statistics don't mean anything to someone who themselves has been a victim of crime or to someone who's seen so many videos of crime on Twitter and next door or local news that they're living in fear. 
And I want to be crystal clear here. My job, my goal, the work I and my office do all day, every day, is to keep San Francisco safe and to make sure that everybody is safe and also feels safe in their home, in their neighborhood, and in our city. And until that's done, it doesn't matter what the data shows, we've got work to do. We need members of our community to feel safe. And that means we've got to do a more effective job communicating. We've got to do a more effective job holding people who commit crimes accountable. We've got to do a more effective job supporting victims of crime. And we've got to continue to innovate and be creative in the policies and the practices and the cases we bring that actually prevent crime from occurring in the first place. And if our listeners want to find out more about your work and uh, your campaign, uh, where can they go? A great place to start is chesagoudin.com. That's C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. We've got a long list of our achievements of uh, the endorsers who are opposing this recall, including the San Francisco Democratic Party, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Bay Area Reporter, the Green Party, the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the San Francisco Labor Council, the Nurses Union, the Teachers Union, the City College Teachers Union. We encourage people to look at the facts and look at the data and evaluate the work we've actually done and the circumstances in which we've been forced to do it. I know I and my office have a massive, massive job ahead of us. San Francisco, has, like so many parts of this country, been relying on a failed approach to responding to crime and trying to promote safety. It took decades to build up the system of mass incarceration. I've only had two years to try and fix it. We've got work to do, and I'm committed to getting the job done for San Francisco. Jason Boudin is the elected district attorney of San Francisco. He's up for recall next month. Chesa, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Good to speak with you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation, Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation, and Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.